pick it, you know. But this morning, uh, turn over to Matthew chapter 6, and we're going to continue our, our time through uh, the disciples' prayer. And we've been looking at this for some six weeks now, and uh, uh, just want to read it once again for us. I know it's probably familiar to all of us, but it's good to put it in its context every week. And in verse 9, Reads, in this manner, therefore, pray, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one, for yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Um, this is known as commonly as the Lord's Prayer. We call it the Disciples' Prayer because it was the disciples who came to Christ in the Gospel of Luke and said, Lord, teach us to pray. And he recited a similar version, almost identical to what we have here this morning in Matthew. And uh, it's, a, it's, it's meant to be a pattern for us to follow. It's not meant necessarily for something just to recite. We can all recite it probably with our eyes closed backwards or whatever, but uh, to really understand what the Lord is showing us. He's giving us a model. Uh, You know, in in Exodus 35, God gave Moses a model of how to build the tabernacle. Uh, Even, you know, when you build a house, you you put together a plan. You don't just, you know, I think I'll go to Home Depot and buy some two-by-fours and start building. You have to have a plan. You have to have a blueprint. And that's basically what this is. It's a skeleton for our prayers to be modeled after. And it's not so much the individual words that make up this prayer, it's more the intent, the attitude of the phrases. And, you know, remember, Jesus was dealing with some people who were very, very self-righteous in his day and age. He was confronting the Pharisees and the scribes, and if you turn back to Matthew 5, uh, verses 6 and 7, he confronts their whole false religious system. And uh, basically, one of the things that they were doing wrong uh, was praying. And their whole focus was all wrong. It was totally self-centered. And so in chapter 6, he begins to attack their kind of prayer. And it's, he basically attacks it as being a very self-centered kind of a prayer. They prayed, and when they would pray, they would parade in front of men with their robes on and everything, thinking that somehow uh, they were going to be more holy than anybody else. And we've all heard people pray that way in prayer meetings when, you know, it comes time to pray. All of a sudden, you know, it's, oh, you know, they, their voice gets all ushy and gushy and their trembles and, you know, they dig down deep to get the deep voice. And, and, and Jesus isn't interested in that. He's not interested in, in the mechanics of how we pray. He's interested in the attitude of our heart. And they wanted nothing to do with private prayer because in their mind, they looked at private prayer and said, well, who's going to be watching? Nobody's going to be watching. So why would we do that? See, and God wants our focus not to be on ourselves, to be self-centered when we come to pray. They prayed parading before men as to how to to see how pious they could look. And uh, they made the heart of their prayer their own will. They could care less about what God's will was. And they thought maybe if they repeated it enough in vain repetitions, he he says, don't pray that way. Um, But that's what they were doing. They just kept on badgering God, thinking, you know what, if I I say this long enough and and, in a certain way, then eventually he will answer my prayer. Kind of like what the pagans 
did in the Old Testament. They constantly just cried out to their God over and over and over, and their God never answered. But they continue to do it. It's vain repetition. It's just saying things over and over. It doesn't mean anything to you. And sometimes this prayer can become that to us, a vain repetition. We just kind of recite it. And God's saying, no, I want it to be a model for our whole prayer life. And sometimes we approach prayer in a similar fashion as the Pharisees did because in their heart, they thought kind of like, you know, God, you better listen to me because I got something to say to you. As if he doesn't already know what they're going to say. And sometimes that's how we come to God in our prayer times. We've all done it and we've all been in situations where that happens where it's like we're informing the rest of the prayer group what the prayer need is in our prayer as if God doesn't already know. So really, are we talking to the people in the prayer circle or are we talking to God? My, my thing would be better just at the beginning of the prayer to say, hey, okay, well, here's what, what the situation is. You know, my, my, my brother Tom has cancer and, you know, he's going through this treatment, so we just want to pray for that right now. And then go to God and, and lay it before him rather than use our prayer time to inform everybody of what we're praying for because we're not really addressing God when we do that. And so we learn the proper way to pray, and it begins with this concentration on God. And he begins right at the beginning there, our Father who where? Who art in heaven. It affirms that God is, and not only that, but that he's our heavenly Father. He's a loving Father, and he desires loving things for his children. And it says that he's in heaven. That means everything is at his disposal. The disposals of eternity, the resources of eternity are at his disposal. And so then we come to the next phrase and we see, hallowed be thy name. We talk to a holy God, an almighty God, a righteous God, a sovereign God, a God who is great and awesome, as the song says. And yet he's still loving. He's still personal. He's still intimate with us. And so we not only come in fear, but we come in joy because we know that our God can meet our needs. We know that he is able to meet whatever need we bring to him within the confines of his will. And we looked at those first three petitions there, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done is what we're on right now as it is in heaven. And you have to focus on that part of the prayer. You have to focus on God before you ever get down to verse 11 where it says, give us. (laughs) And then it says, forgive us. And then it says, lead us. See, if you have a skewed understanding of who God is, then you're going to have a skewed understanding of how it is that he is going to give you anything. You're going to have a skewed understanding of how he is going to be able to forgive you of anything. And you're going to have a a misunderstanding of how he is going to lead you anywhere if you don't understand who God is and his attributes. I'm thoroughly convinced that most Christians who are struggling in their Christian life are struggling in their Christian life because they don't have a proper high view of the God that saved them. And so they're all, they're all caught up with their circumstances and they're fretting about this and they're fretting about that because they don't understand that, you know what? They're in the situation they're in and, 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 and God somewhat, somehow has allowed that to happen. And it's, it's interesting to me that so many times when things come into our lives, we go into panic mode. It would be almost, well, a little over a year ago that I had that cancer cut out of my back. And I just remember thinking, okay, this is going to be interesting. I've never dealt with this before, whatever. But, you know, a year later, I don't even think about it. I said, Pastor Fred, how's your back or your shoulder? I'm like, what are you talking about? You know, it kind of hurts, but I, maybe that's because I was doing something in the yard or whatever. I don't, oh, no, didn't you have something? Oh, yeah, that's right. 
I did, you know. And so I don't allow those things to just kind of, you know, weigh me down because I know that it all fits into God's overall plan for who he wants me to be and what he wants me to do. And so we come to God and we say, Our Father who is in heaven, we affirm God. That's the first thing that we have to do. Prayer begins with us. If it begins with me or with you, if that's what our prayer life begins with, we're all concerned about our needs, then we're missing it. It begins with him. It begins with his holy name. It begins with his kingdom and his will, not our own. I know of one individual in our church that kind of had her heart set on going a certain place and doing a certain thing and concerning college. Well, it wasn't in the cards. God redirected that person. (laughs) And, you know, yeah, it's a disappointment in a way, I'm sure. But you know what? Don't ever forget that God has you where you're at for a reason. Maybe there's somebody back there that he wants you to touch that have an impact on. Maybe somebody in the community. Maybe even somebody at a gas station or a store. You don't know. You don't know what God has for us, but he has something for all of us, and it's all within the confines of his purpose, his will. And so we looked at our Father in heaven. That's the fatherhood of God, the paternity. We looked at hallowed be thy name, the priority. We're looking at thy kingdom come, thy will be done. That's like thy kingdom come is his program. Thy will be done is his plan. And then we get into his provision, his pardon, and protection when we, when we get back. But prayer is primarily an act of worship. It's coming to God and, and, and asking God to commune with you. And it's really a continuation of the process of sanctification that he began in us. That's why I love about Philippians, you know, it says, He who began a good work in you will what? He will complete it, right? He will complete it. There's no question about it. And so when we come to prayer, we don't want to have the mindset that, okay, our prayers are going to change God. That's not going to happen. Prayer is really to change us, to change our hearts. It's very important to understand that. And so when we come to this petition again, where he says, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, it's kind of important that we understand that it's his will that matters. It's his will that is important. And you know what? The bottom line is that God's will will be done, no matter what. Um, We never should desire to usurp his will. We never should desire to, to take our will and put it over his. It should never be our desire to change his will because that would be saying that somehow God's will is wrong or to force his will to be conformed to something that we want or we desire. See, prayer is not meant to bend God to my will. That's not the purpose of it. The purpose of prayer is to bend my will to God's will. Not to bend God's will to mine, but mine to his. Now, we we talked a little bit about this last week, but God's will is already being done in heaven. You know that, right? Because it says there, as it is in heaven. Well, God's will is always done in heaven. And it's interesting when you think about it. Well, who's doing the will of God in heaven? Angels. How do they do the will of God in heaven? They do it in a variety of ways. But they do it without kind of hesitation. There's never a discussion. 
They don't waver about when God tells them to do something. They don't sit there and go, well, I don't know. (laughs) You know, it's not like here on earth where God's got to kind of poke us and prod us and kick us sometimes and say, look, will you do my will? See, in heaven, there's only one will, and that's God's. And so when he gives his will out, the angels do it immediately. They do it completely. There's no other alternatives to his will. There's no gaps. There's no omissions. It's completely the will of God in heaven. And they do it sincerely, if you stop and think about this. They're eager to do the will of God. Um, They're waiting for the next command, whatever he gives from on high for them to do. See, that should be our heart. That's the way we should look at at God's will. They do it willingly. They do it without without the attitude that sometimes we bring to doing God's will. You know, there's only one will in heaven. There was two at one time, once, and one got kicked out. Remember, Lucifer rebelled and said, hey, now I'm going to do everything. I, I, I. Well, no, no, you're not. This is heaven, and what happens in heaven is God's will, and so see you later. And they do it fervently. They do it aggressively. They do it passionately, constantly, swiftly. I mean, these are how the angels carry out the will of God in heaven. And, and what God wants us to do is to bring that down to earth and say, that's, that's our attitude toward his will. We should have the same attitude as the angels do in heaven here on earth about doing the will of God. In Psalm 103, verse 20, the psalmist writes, You, his angels, that do his commandments... See, thy will be done in earth as it is in heaven. That means that in earth it should be done unwavering, completely, sincerely, willingly, fervently, readily, swiftly, constantly. All the way the angels do in heaven should be done here on earth because that's the the way it is done in heaven. And you say, well, how does that happen? I read this this past week and I thought this was good. The death of self is the beginning of a true prayer life. The death of self is the beginning of a true prayer life. When you finally die to yourself, and this is an ongoing thing, it's not like a one-time deal, but only when self dies does true prayer begin because only then can we set aside our will and look at God's will and say, okay, God, it's not about me, it's about you. I don't know about you, but most of my prayer life is consumed with my needs, my wants, my desires, my hurts, my pains. You know, I'm, I'm praying about me, praying about my family, praying about this, praying about that. But it's not so much, you know, about God. It's about my needs and all these things. See, and true prayer is dominated not by all those things, but by his name, by his kingdom, by his will, not ours. And so when we come to prayer, we should ask God, first of all, you know, <clears throat> allow me to put myself on the altar. Let me die to myself because it's not about me. I know that. You've clearly said that over and over in the word. David said in the Psalms, I delight to do thy will, O my God. And Jesus did the same thing. He said, my food is to do the will of him that sent me. It's all about his name. It's all about his kingdom, his will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Last week, we looked at the negative aspects of of this. And the first one we looked at was, you know, you can look at God's will and say with a bitter resentment in your heart, you know what, I know you're too big for me and I can't compete with you, so go ahead and do your will. I don't care anymore. 
It's kind of like you're looking at God as this guy up there that's just this, someone calls him a cosmic killjoy. He's just looking down for somebody who's having fun and then he just squashes the fun right out of their life. That's not the kind of God we serve. God is not the God who's committed to reigning on everybody's parade. That's not the kind of God we serve. But if you have that bitter resentment in your heart toward him and his will, that's how you're going to look at him. We also looked at the idea of passive resignation. If God's will is going to happen, then, you know, who cares? What will be, will be. And we fall into that trap too many times. And then the third thing we looked at was theological reservation. How do we fit the sovereignty of God into praying that his will be done if it will be done anyway? And and we have this whole tension going on. See, if your theology causes you to eliminate any persistence in your prayer life, you've got bad theology. If you go to your prayer life and you say, yeah, you know what, I know God's sovereign, so why even pray? (laughs) It's not going to do any good anyway, so who cares? God's, you know, chosen before the foundation of the world. Those are going to be saved, so whether I pray for somebody or not really has little or no uh, effect on that at all. See, if that's what you believe, then your theology is warped. There's something wrong in your theology. I mean, there are people out there, beloved, that even take the sovereignty of God to the point where, well, yeah, I sinned, but God kind of allowed me to sin, so really he made me sin because he's sovereign. He controls everything. So if I go sin, he could prevent it, but he didn't. And you can go down that road real quick and you become this fatalistic wreck. And everything that happens is, well, that's just the will of God. And we looked at last week when some things are not the will of God. We have to have a perspective on our, on our theology that allows for the sovereignty of God and also allows for us to pray passionately and persistently for God to work. So don't say negatively, well, thy will be done with a bitter resentment in your heart. And don't say, thy will be done, passive, you know, okay, sirrah, sirrah, that kind of thing. And don't say it with any theological reservation either. And we talked about how when we come to prayer, we should really work on an attitude of rebellion. (laughs) Most of us are rebellious anyway at heart. But let's make that rebellion work in a good way for us. Let's rebel against the things that we need to rebel against. I mean, we're living in a lost and dying world. Jesus said in Luke 18, 1, we ought to pray at times and not all times and not faint. And so many times we're just fainting under the squash of this sinful world. And we just kind of give up and go, oh, well. I mean, we, we need to begin to pray now that in November when the elections take place that, you know what, God's will is done. We need to pray now that God will allow a, a, uh, the, the California Protection Act for marriage to be passed. We need to be praying now that in November that thing gets passed and it overturns this, these homosexual rights or marriage and all this other thing. Because that's not God's will. And we need to begin to, to, to look at those things and pray for those things. We can't just sit back and say, ah, well, you know, it's just going to get worse. Yeah, it is. But that doesn't mean we, we stop praying. And we don't rebel against the world and its fallenness. And the way to rebel is through prayer. 
ask God to work. It's, it's so important that we, we, we understand that because it's, we can very easily just kind of recline back into the armchairs of grace and go, oh, well, you know, whatever. You know, over in, in, in John chapter 2, I think of this illustration of Jesus when he came into the world. You know, he just didn't look around when he walked into the temple that day in, in, in John 2. Um, and he came into the temple. And, and when he came into the temple at the beginning of his ministry... He didn't go in and look around and see what was going on in his father's house and go, "Eh, well, you know, what do I expect? I guess, you know, these guys are, you know, they're going to do this and, you know, blah, 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 blah. He didn't do that. He didn't take the status quo as being okay. He didn't look at it and say, well, it's the will of God that they turn this into a a house for for thieves and robbers. What am I going to do about it? He didn't do that at all. The Bible says that he rebelled. Everything within our Lord rebelled against what he saw. And if you look at, at the whole passage, he was really indignant. He was furious. He was angry with a righteous anger. And he actually made a whip. And he started flipping over tables. I mean, can you imagine? And he started chasing people out. started lashing at people. And he not only did it once, he did it twice. (laughs) They got out of there fast, and when they did, they lost their money. Now, you don't think that that caused a little bit of problem? Whenever you take people's money, that causes a problem. That unleashed a fury against Jesus. But he wasn't willing to just accept that as God's will, these people were in there ripping people off in the Father's house. No, he, he went about changing. He rebelled against the system. He wouldn't tolerate the way it was. See, he wouldn't tolerate the way it was in sorrow or in sin or in sickness. I mean, that's why he died. That's why he went to the cross. That's why he healed people. That's why he raised people from the dead to stop the tears, to bring glory to himself. He didn't accept the way the world was around him. And see, he calls us to do the same. He doesn't want us just to accept everything the way it is. Our prayer should be, thine will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Interesting thing to think about. Jesus knew the beginning from the end. He knew everything. He was God. And yet he was never a fatalist. He never looked at his situation and said, well, this is going to happen anyway. So stop and think about it. And he prayed three times in the garden. To his father, Lord, if there's another way, he knew there was another way. He knew that. But he didn't allow that knowledge to bring him to a fatalistic attitude. He never resigned to it. He sought God's will. And when there was sin, he fought it. When there was injustice, he fought it. And I think when he went in the garden and he had communed with his father those nights, night after night... I don't think he went there thinking, you know, this doesn't really, it's not going to do any good. What's going to happen is going to happen. That wasn't his attitude. And I think today in our society, we get too comfortable. 
We, we just, you know, kind of accept the status quo and we just get really comfortable in America. And so we don't pray the way we should. I mean, can you imagine being in a country where a gathering like this, you could be thrown into jail, even uh, put to death, and yet those people are still meeting under that kind of a fear? where I heard this, but there was a pastor who was talking to some, uh, I don't know if they're from China, Christians from China, whatever, and, and uh, they were impressed with this guy's church, and they saw it growing and everything, and, and they came over, and they sent kind of a bunch of pastors over to talk to this guy, and the pastor was talking to him about, you know, well, you know, we don't really necessarily do anything to grow the church. That's God's job, and he's going to bring who he's going to bring, and we just focus on teaching his word and all that stuff. And and they were kind of intrigued by that, so they asked him, well, how much do you study and all this stuff? And this pastor's real studious, so it was, you know, four to six hours a day. And Wow, you study four to six hours? Well, yeah, every day, every week, you know, and he's going through this whole thing. Feeling pretty good about what he was telling them because it was the truth. And at the end of the conversation, one of the pastors said, uh, well, how much time do you pray every day? <laughs> and the pastor thought, wow, got me. <laughs> I may spend four to six hours studying. I don't, but some pastors do, just to let you know. Um, but it, it's important to understand that, you know, when they do that, don't, don't forget the prayer aspect of things. How much time do we really put into our prayer life? I think most of us are ashamed to even say. And you wonder, why is that? Why is that? If prayer is supposed to be such an instrumental thing, if prayer is supposed to move and and work and, and carry out the plan of God and all that, I think it's just because we get comfortable. We get comfortable where we're at. And I think we don't pray enough because we really don't believe that it matters whether we pray or not. I mean, can you imagine if somehow by divine intervention, God would, I mean, even today, say we're going on this, this trip to Florida, all right? And, and by, by some miraculous thing, God could come down in a vision and say, okay, Steve, if you pray an hour before you go on this trip, here's what the trip's going to look like. If you pray five minutes, God bless this trip, bless the pilot, amen. Here's what's going to happen. Plane's going to go down somewhere over Kansas, and you're going to die. So, two minutes of prayer, you're going to die. An hour of prayer, you arrive safely. I mean, if I had that knowledge getting on that plane, what do you think I'd be doing? I would be praying. Okay? Why? Because I know that God showed me if I pray for an hour, I'm going to get there safely. But if I only kind of throw off a little flippant prayer, I'm going to die. See, we don't believe that prayer really matters. We don't think it makes any difference. And it's because we perceive it as making a difference in our circumstances rather than making a difference in us. The reason we pray usually is because we want to change our circumstances. I want to arrive there safely, so I'll pray an hour. I want to change the circumstances. See, prayer is not for the purpose of changing our 
circumstances. It does that, but that's not the real purpose of it. The real purpose of prayer is to change how we relate to our circumstances. So when we draw near to God and we pray, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done. We, we draw ourselves into conformity to who he is. No matter what our circumstances are, he will give us the proper attitude to deal with those circumstances. He'll give us the grace to get through whatever we're going through. But we don't pray just because we have messed up circumstances. But I do believe that even beyond that, God does change circumstances. Have you ever prayed for somebody? And praying for them and they get saved? How do you view that? Do you say, well, they would have got saved anyway, whether I would have prayed or not? See, that's back to the bitter resentment, passive resignation. Or do you believe really that your prayers had an impact? That your prayers somehow worked with the purpose of God in all this? And as James 5.16, the effectual fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. See, it's not about you and your prayer, but it's about being committed to doing what God has told us to do. We all know that God not only chooses those to be saved... The Bible says, but we forget this. He also chooses the methods that he uses to save them. And sometimes those methods may include us in our prayers. See, we've lost our passion. We've lost our, our belief that, that that prayer, that rebellious thing that says, you know what, this world's going to hell in a handbasket. You know what, and I've got to start praying because I want God to make a difference. So when we look at at prayer in that negative sense, the resentment, the passivity, the theological reservation, those three things tend to creep in. Well, there's there's a positive aspect to this, and that's what I want to look at this morning. Um, When you distinguish God's will and you kind of understand it at least a little bit better, you can kind of get your hands around it a little more. Hopefully, by the time you walk out of here, you'll understand a little more of of what God's will is all about. See, God's will is not just God's just will. It's just not one big thing. I mean, you can look at it in Scripture and you can see different facets of God's will. And the first facet you see is what we call God's will of purpose. God's will of purpose. In other words, God's will of purpose is, is this the idea that it's, there's this vastness to God's will. It's all-inclusive. It's comprehensive. It's his tolerating will. See, this is the, the, the part of God's will that allows for sin, that allows for sickness, that allows for death. It's the consummation of everything. It absolutely embodies the whole earth, all of heaven, all of hell, and everything. All of his will is being done when you talk about the will of his purpose. In Jeremiah 51, 79, it says this, For every purpose of the Lord shall be performed. Every purpose of the Lord shall be performed. 
See, this will is this massive concept of his will that allows for sin running its course, as we talked about last week. It allows for the consummation of all the ages. It allows for the establishment of his kingdom, the eternal state, everything that is encompassed from heaven to hell, everything in between. That's the will of his purpose. And there's no question that that's being done. And there's no question that his plan, the will of his purpose, is right on track. It's never misses a beat. It's never off track. God doesn't make any mistakes. God is working his will, his purpose out, in the ultimate purpose of of everything we see around us. In Isaiah chapter 14, there are some verses that kind of essential to understand this concept of God's will. In Isaiah 14, verse 24, it says this, The Lord of hosts has sworn, saying, Surely, as I I thought, so it shall come to pass. And as I have purposed, so shall it stand. See, when God thinks a thought, something is going to happen. It's just going to happen. When God purposes, then it comes to pass. Verse 26 of that same chapter, Isaiah 14, says, This is the purpose that he purposed upon the whole earth. Notice how wide, how encompassing it is. And this is the hand that is stretched out upon all the nations. For the Lord of the hosts has purposed it. Who shall annul it? In other words, no one. No one can change this will of purpose when it comes to God's will. God has these massive purposes that are coming to pass, and they do happen. You say, well, give me an example. Well, it's not God's directive will for people to get sick. He doesn't will that upon people. But it is within his purpose to allow sickness to accomplish his own ends in that person's life. We can go around the room and say, yeah, it was because of sickness. I finally came to the Lord or I finally got my act strained out or I finally got whatever. It, it, it had a purpose in your life. See, it's not God's directive will that death enter into the human race. That wasn't his directive will. And people die, but it was in the comprehension of his purpose. And he uses den, death for his own end to bring his own himself glory. See, and that's the broadest term of God's will, the will of purpose, God's will of purpose. In Romans, we see that all things work together for good to them that love God and are called what? According to his purpose. In other words, though God doesn't will evil, God takes the things that happen in our lives, and sometimes they are evil, and he puts them together for good because that's his purpose. It doesn't see all things are good. He says, the, the verse says, all things work together for good. That includes the good, the bad, the ugly. Okay, everything works together for good. It's an all-encompassing concept. In Ephesians chapter 1, verse 9, it says, Having made known unto us the mystery of his will, according to what? His good purpose, which he purposed in himself. In other words, here he's talking about salvation. He's talking about incredible forgiveness, the redemption, which is part of God's great encompassing purpose. And then he goes on to talk about the Jew and the Gentile being one. He says, the dispensation of the fullness of time gathering in all together in one in Christ in heaven and in earth. 
which is according to what? The purpose of him who works all things after the counsel of his will. God's great purpose for a redeemed is, is for a redeemed people, for a unified church, for a body of saints for eternity. That's his overall will of purpose. So it refers to kind of an eternal plan here. God's will of purpose. Well, how do you pray this will to be done? I mean, well, in Revelation 22, verse 7, Jesus says this, Behold, I come quickly. Right? That's a promise. He says that. In verse 12, he says there, Behold, I come quickly. In verse 20, Jesus says, Behold, I come quickly. All right, he says it three times. Now, that's his purpose. That's his eternal plan. Well, what's John's response to that? At the end of the book, even so what? Come, Lord Jesus. That's how you pray in accord with the, with the will of his purpose. And see, and when you get involved in that, that aspect of things, I mean, it, it gives you in a sense of anticipation because God is saying this is going to happen. And when we pray, hey, we want this to happen. We want Jesus to come back. I talked to a Christian one day and they said, you know, I said, boy, the way things are going, you know, the Lord could come back anytime. And, well, I got some things I got to do first. I'm like, are you kidding me? You better get at it because, you know, I'm not going to wait. That's for sure. I mean, don't you ever just get tired of living in the flesh, struggling with sin and and all this stuff every day? Don't you ever get tired of your physical body? I was telling my wife the other day that I said, man, my joints and my my elbow, both elbows just ache. It's just starting to ache continuously. Like just going like this hurts. Well, you got to go to the doctor. I'm not going to the doctor. You know, he'll just say, oh, you're stressed out or something. That's what my doctor always says at Kaiser. So it is. I'm serious. I can go on there with a big growth on the side of my head. Well, you know, it seems like you're under a little stress, you know. You know, you're pastors. You have a stressful job. I'm like, yeah, we do? I said, oh, okay. But, you know, don't you ever get tired of your physical body just aching and pains and all this stuff? And, and, and then you get tired of the anxiety that the world causes and just puts on us constantly. I mean, we're anxious about everything. I mean, don't you ever just stop and long for that freedom that we're going to have as, as a son or a daughter of God in his presence when you're like Christ and you can dwell in eternal glory with him forever? I mean, I don't know about you, but I long for that. Don't give me this, well, I got some things I got to do first. You know, hey, come, even so, Lord Jesus, come now if you want. That's fine. I'll, you know, grandkids are on their own, you know. That's, that's fine, man. I'm going to be in heaven. That's great. The sooner the better. That's praying according to the will of purpose. We know what's going to happen and we need to pray that way. Well, the second will that God has is God has a will which we'll call the will of desire. And see, rather than having this all-encompassing plan of God's will of purpose, you kind of narrow it down to a heart's desire. Um, we're all like that. I mean, you know, we have a plan for our lives, hopefully, and we kind of have a direction we want to go in, and we have certain goals and all this stuff, and it kind of narrows down to the, the certain desires that we enjoy to do, all right? Um, you know, if you don't like picking up garbage, I don't think it would be your desire to be a garbage man one day. I mean, you would have a purpose and a plan to kind of avoid that, all right? So uh, not that there's anything wrong with being a garbage man or a sanitation engineer, whatever you want to call them. You know, that's probably a very well-paying job. And they're always in shape because they're always running. You, know, you see these guys running. I mean, they're always running after the garbage truck. I, I don't understand that. It's like, you know, and then the guy sitting in the truck is usually this 
pretty big fella, and they got these little guys running around that are probably in excellent, excellent shape. But, you know, I don't know why I even said that, but God's will of desire, okay, it, it comes down to a personal thing. It's, 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 it's a personal desire of his heart. And it's the same way with God, all right? It's the exact same way with God. He has a will of desire. Um, and you know what? It's not always done. God's will of desire is not always done because it's just that. It's a desire. And in some sense, some of that is unfulfilled. Um, it's hard sometimes to understand that when we're talking about the will of God who's so much bigger than us. But I mean, that's very true. There's a lot of things that God wills that just don't seem to happen. Um, in Luke 13, 34, Jesus desired that Jerusalem be saved. And, and uh, in Matthew, and then in Luke 13, 34, he says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, I want to gather you, but you won't. <laughs> I want to do this. It's my desire to gather you. But you know what? You're not going to do it. You won't do it. In John 5.40, he said, You will not come to me that you might have life. I want you to. I want you to be saved. I want you to have eternal life. But you won't come to me. You won't bow your heart to me. And it says that Jesus wept. And he wept. And back in Jeremiah chapter 13, God says, I'm going to judge you. And when I have to judge you, he says this, my eye will run down with tears. See, God is not an angry God up in heaven just wringing his hands going, oh, I can't wait to get a hold of you. Just wait till the judgment day. No, he wants all men to come to a saving knowledge of Christ. That's his heart's desire. That's his will of desire. And that's what it says. In Peter, it says, he is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Does that mean that's going to happen? No, we know that's not going to happen. Everybody's not going to be saved. That's universalism. Also says, God, our father, who will have all men to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. See, I believe it's the heart's desire of God that this happened. And yet we know that the scripture says that there's many on that day that are come before the Lord and say, Lord, Lord. And what's he say? Sorry apart i never knew you because they didn't bow their heart to christ see he desires all men to be saved but it's not going to happen it's a will of desire and that's one of those mysteries that's that's one of those uh, paradoxes where i got in trouble last week for saying using that word but anyway paradox i can't pronounce the other word but it's, it's one of those things that's just a tension that you have God who is absolutely sovereign, and then you have men and women who have a volition. You can't put those together. I don't understand how they would come together. I believe that God's desire is that people be saved. I believe that Jesus even wept over people that he knew would never be redeemed. Why else would he weep? If he knew they were going to be saved, he wouldn't cry over them, obviously. But his tears show his desire. So he has a will of desire. And then the third aspect of God's will, think of it this way, a will of command. Will of command. See, the first one, the will of purpose, it kind of applies to everybody, the whole universe. Everything is under his will of purpose. The second one, the the, uh, will of desire is, is basically talking to unbelievers. 
it's concerning unbelievers because they're not going to do God's will. How could we expect them to do God's will? And the third one, the will of command, God's will of command, it really narrows it down to it. He's talking to Christians here. So the will of purpose is related to the whole universe. The will of desire is basically confining that to unbelievers. The will of command is talking about Christians. I mean, it doesn't do any good to command an unbeliever to do his will, right? You know, it's funny because sometimes we do that as Christians, don't we? We, we, we take somebody who's not committed follower of Jesus Christ and then we put the standard of a Christian and we put it on them. Sometimes that happens at family gatherings, at Christmas, Thanksgiving, all sorts of places like that. And we look down our spiritual nose at them and, oh, they're not, they already started eating. They're not even praying. Can you believe? You know, and, and the whole thing starts. Why, why would they pray? They, you know, they don't have a desire to do that. They don't, you know, they're, they're unbelievers. They're, they're people who are willfully unwilling to bow their knee, their heart to the cross. See, the will of command is not for those. It's for Christians. It's talking about those who have come to Christ because an unbeliever has no capacity whatsoever to, to, to do the will of God. So when we say, thy will be done, what are we saying? Fulfill your purpose in the world, God. Bring it to a consummation. Take all the struggles and trials and sicknesses and all this anxiety, everything that I have in my life, and work it out for your ultimate eternal plan in your eternal mind, infinite mind. It may not make sense to me, but that's okay. Thy will be done. Sometimes when we pray for people to come to Christ, you know, we want to pray, Lord, your will be done. And maybe we're talking about the will of desire here. God, we know that you desire all men to come to repentance. And that's how you pray. Or maybe when it comes to the aspect of the will of command, we, we pray, God, help me be obedient in my Christian life. Bring it down to me personally. See, there's, there's three ways to bring the kingdom. We talked about this several weeks ago. Number one was through conversion. Remember, thy kingdom come. When, when Christ comes and he reigns in somebody's heart, when you, when you out of your, your volition, say, God, I need, I, I'm a sinner, I know that, and I, and I know that from your word, what it says is there's only one way out of this, and that's to come to Christ. And I come to Christ, and I repent of my sin, and I turn to you and ask you for forgiveness. That's conversion. Secondly, there's the commitment. When a believer lives according to righteousness... But you have to be converted to do that. And then the third one was when we look forward to his ultimate coming on earth, when we see the kingdom come physically here on earth, when he comes back to rule and reign for a thousand years. See, the purpose of his will embraces the ultimate end, that, that final coming. That's going to happen. That's the will of his purpose. The will of desire basically embraces the idea of conversion. And the will of obedience embraces the idea that uh, we're, we're committed in our personal lives. In Acts 5.29, the verse says, we ought to obey God rather than who? Men, right? We ought to obey God rather than men. In, 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 in Romans 6, it says, look, you've yielded yourselves servants to God 
Now you are to obey the one to whom you yield yourselves as servants. We're to be obedient. See, once we come to Christ, we don't just have a free pass to go do whatever we want to do. You don't just play loosey-goosey with, you know, everything in the, you find in the Bible saying, well, I'm going to be saved, so I'm going to be saved. And, you know, it's God's grace. So, you know, we lived in the age of grace. So if I go sin, who cares? You know, that's, that's not the attitude of a Christian. The attitude of a Christian would want to carry out his will of obedience. You would want to be obedient to the Father. And that's when you look through Psalm 119 over and over again in that psalm. You, you, you hear the psalmist um, say, Make me to understand by the way of your precepts. I've chosen the way of faithfulness. I set your ordinances before me. I will run the way of the commandments. Teach me, O Lord, the way of your statutes. In other words, show me in your word what you want me to do so I can do it. That's why it's so important when we come together as believers, we're opening up a book, we call the Bible that we believe to be God's truth, and we say, okay, how are we going to apply this to our lives? How are we going to do more of what this says in our lives? That's what the Christian life is. That's what the process of sanctification is. It's doing more of what God requires you to do, what God expects you to do. And as we do that, we see God's blessing in our life. And if we do it in the, the power of the Spirit, it's not even a, you know, it's not even a drain on us. Because it's God, it's Christ that's living this life through us. And so when we pray, thy will be done, we're embracing all these things. Conversion, commitment, his coming again, all these things. And so many of us, when we go to prayer, it's hard for us to be preoccupied with God. I mean, you know, we go to prayer and usually we'll say, you know, thank you, Lord, for saving us. And then, you know, pretty much we kind of drift off and and name some of our needs and stuff and close it out. It's hard to be preoccupied with God in our prayers. And there's one basic reason. It's called pride. It's called the sin that, that kind of resides in our heart. In Isaiah 14, Lucifer says five times, I will. And that was his fall. I will do this, I will do that. When we come to prayer, we, sh- we shouldn't say, I, I want this. I, that's, not about it. that's not what it's about. It's about, God, what do you want? Okay, you've allowed this to happen in my life. I don't understand why, but God, there must be a purpose. Help me see the purpose. I don't know why I'm stuck out here on 280 with a flat tire. I ran out of gas. I don't know. And God's saying, because you didn't put gas in the car, dummy. But, you know, I mean, still, you know, you can say, hey, kind of weave that into your purpose somehow. It's so important that we do that. You know, there's only one will being done in heaven, and that's God's will. And there's billions of wills here on earth. So the ratio is, is, you know, a billion to one down here, several billion to one. But up there, it's one to one. What God says, it, it gets done. And that's what we have to bring in our own heart. We have to say, hey, you know what? Help me put this pride aside. Help me to live in a way that's pleasing to you every day. Well, how do you do that? Well, Romans 12 says this, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, we've read this several times, that you what? Present your bodies a living sacrifice. Notice, not a dead sacrifice, a living sacrifice. One that you can kind of deny yourself and and kind of grab some humility and say, hey. And it goes on, it says, which is your reasonable service? And he goes on, he says, don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may know what is good, acceptable, perfect, what? Will of God. 
So how do you do that? How do you get to the point where we know what God's will is in our life? You know, so many times we think that God took his will. We became a Christian. God took his will and he said, I'm going to hide it. Now, you have to go find my will. And then we spend the rest of our Christian life looking for God's will in our life. That's not, God doesn't play those games. He's not into the bait and switch thing. He's not, he's not into all that. You know, he, he, he wants you to know his will. If we just get into his word, we can see very clearly what his will is. And we start doing what's revealed. He'll, he'll even show us more in our own personal lives. But we can see what that is. But until the day comes when you lay your life down on the altar and you're the living sacrifice, until your will is dead, God's will can't be manifested in your life. And some people don't get that and they don't want to go there. I don't want to give up my will. I have rights. I have, you know, no. When it comes to God, you don't. You leave everything on the altar. You say, well, what's a a living sacrifice? You remember Abraham? He took Isaac, strapped wood on his back, marched him up the top of Mount Moriah because God told him, hey, go sacrifice your son. I mean, I'm sure as as Abraham's climbing up this mountain, you know, he's not going, whoopee-doo. You know, he's thinking, this doesn't make sense. I mean, all these blessings are supposed to come through my son, and I've waited this long, and now you're telling me to go sacrifice him? What's up with that, God? But he was obedient. He was obedient. Down to the point where he lifted the knife up to slay his son. doesn't make sense in his mind. Why am I doing this? Because God told me to. It's one of the greatest illustrations of a living sacrifice because Abraham went all the way up there. He put Isaac down. He strapped him down. He lifted up the knife and he was ready to plunge it into his heart. And right at the right time, I mean, if he would have done that, Isaac would have been the dead sacrifice. But you know what? Abraham would have been the living sacrifice. Because he really set aside his own will. I mean, can you imagine having to slay your own son? Wow, we can't even relate to that. Because Abraham would have crucified all of his dreams, all of his hopes, all of his own ambitions, all of his goals, all of his desires, everything on that altar because God told him to do it. That's, that's how far he was willing to go. He literally would have had to die to himself in obedience to God to carry out what God expected him to do. See, today the question is not whether can you die for Christ. The question is, can you live selflessly for him? That's the real question. And if you can, then you're going to know, you're going to understand what his will is for you on a daily basis. And that's what we're to be praying for when we pray for God's will be done. Prayer really is, is a way that God changes us. Through his grace, he changes us. The end of prayer, John Hanna said, is not so much tangible answers as a deepening life of dependency. That's what prayer is all about. The call to prayer, he says, is a call to love, submission, and obedience, the avenue of sweet, intimate, and intense fellowship of the soul with the infinite creator. I want to close with an illustration I read from... Philip, one of Philip Keller's books. And um, he, he lived in Pakistan as a boy. 
and uh, says that he was reading through Jeremiah 18.2, and he came across a verse that said this, Arise and go down to the potter's house, and there I will cause thee to hear my words. And the book says he got kind of curious about the potter and what the lessons the potter had to teach him. And so he went down to the potter's house in the city in which he lived, and this is what he wrote. He kind of gave this little snippet, and I just want you to sit there and just kind of focus and, and listen. He says, In sincerity and earnestness, I asked the old master craftsman to show me every step in the creation of the masterpiece. On his shelves were gleaming goblets and loving vases and exquisite bowls of breathtaking beauty. And then, crooking a bony finger toward me, he led the way to a small, dark, closed shed at the back of his shop. And when he opened its rickety door, this repulsive, overpowering stench of decaying matter engulfed me. For a moment, I stepped back from the edge of the gaping dark pit in the floor of the shed. This is where the work begins, he said. Kneeling down beside a black, nauseating hole, with his long, thin arm, he reached down into the darkness. His slime Skilled fingers felt around amid the lumpy clay, searching for a fragment of material exactly suited to its task. I add special kind of grass to the mud, he remarked, and as it rots and it decays, its organic content increases the collateral quality of the clay, and it sticks together better. Finally, his knowing hands brought up a lump of dark, smelly mud from this horrible pit where the clay had been trampled and mixed by his hard, bony feet. With tremendous impact, the first verses of Psalm 40 came to my heart. He brought me up out of the horrible pit, out of the miry clay. As carefully as the potter had selected the clay, so God had selected me. And then the great slab of granite cut from rough rock of the high Hindu Kush mountains behind his home began to whirl quietly. It was operated by a very crude uh, threadle-like device that was moved by his feet, very much like an antique sewing machine. And as the stone gathered momentum, I was taken to memory to Jeremiah 18.3. Then I went down to the potter's house, and behold, he wrought a work on the wheel. And what stood out most before my mind at this point was the fact that beside the potter's stool, on either side of him were two basins of water. And then he goes on to tell how that all the while the wheel was turning with the clay, he kept dipping his hands in the water and then he would mold the clay and then he would dip his hands in the water again and mold the clay. And never could he mold without the water because it would stick to his hands and it would ruin it. And so his hands always had to be wet. And he said it was fascinating. It was fascinating to see how swiftly but surely the clay responded to the pressure applied through those moistened hands, silently smoothing the form of a graceful goblet began to take shape before, uh, between his hands. And the water was the medium through which the master craftsman's will and his wishes were transmitted to the clay. His will was actually being done in earth through the water. And immediately, I thought of the water of the word, 
which is God's agency for doing his will in earth. When God touches my life, he said, he touches me with his word. It is the water of the word that expresses his will, expresses the will of the master and finds fulfillment in fashioning man into his choice. It goes on. Suddenly, to his astonishment, he noticed the wheel stopped. Gently, the man reached in. He picked out a small piece of stone. And then he began to spin it again. And he stopped it again. And he reached down again. And he picked out a larger piece of stone. And he noticed now that with the tenderness of his hand, he could feel every rough spot, every stone, every small grain of sand. The two had, he had taken out were too large and the goblet was marred. And so he reached to it and he crushed it with his hands. Keller said to him, oh, that's sad. What will happen to that? Oh, he said, I'll make it into a common finger bowl. He said, it'll never be a goblet. It's too scarred. And I thought again of Jeremiah 18.4, Keller writes, and the vessel that he made of clay was marred in the hand of the potter. Seldom, he says, did any lesson come home to me with such tremendous clarity and force? Why was this rare and beautiful masterpiece ruined in the master's hands? The reason he writes, because he ran into resistance. It was a thunderclap bursting in my mind. Why is my father's will, his intention to turn out a truly beautiful people brought to naught again and again? It's because of our resistance, because of our hardness. Despite his best efforts and endless patience with us, and besides the water of the word applied to us, we end up nothing but a finger bowl. The sobering, searching, searing question I had asked myself in the humble surroundings of that simple potter shed was this, am I going to be a piece of fine china or just a finger bowl? Is my life going to be a gorgeous goblet fit to hold fine wine of God's very life from which others can drink and be refreshed? Or am I going to be a crude finger bowl in which passerbyers will simply dabble their fingers briefly then pass on and forget about it? This was one of the most solemn moments in my life, he writes. And I prayed, Father, thy will be done in, my earth, in earth, in clay, in me, as it is in heaven. Keller goes on to tell when the potter finishes his work, while it's still spinning, he takes a long thread and he just pulls it through the bottom and he cuts it off. And Keller writes, he says, I thought about being separated onto good works. And then the potter takes it and he places it in an oven and through hardship, it's finally finished. See, beloved, God wants to do his will in our lives. He really does. He's like that potter. He wants to make a fine goblet, a piece of fine china. But because we resist sometimes, because we don't do what he desires for us to do, we're unwilling to obey his commands, we end up a mere finger bowl. Something that people dab their fingers in and just pass by and forget about. Father, we thank you for your word this morning. Lord, we pray that our heart's desire would not be just to be a finger bowl. Father, you've been good to us through all of our lives since we've known Christ. 
we've received gift after gift from you, gracious gifts. We have the privilege of worshiping you together, sharing together in your precious truth. Lord, would it drive us to the place of prayer that we would seek your coming again? Would we pray and seek the conversion of the hearts of the lost, lost those who have yet to come to Christ? The fulfillment of your will of purpose, your will of desire, and finally, the will of obedience in our own lives, the will of command, that when we hear your word, that we would be willing to do it as the angels do in heaven. Father, we thank you for your grace in our lives. We pray today that if there's anyone here who has yet to put their faith, their trust in you, Lord, I ask that you would show them, without a doubt, your desire for them to be saved, their desire, your desire for them to come to Christ, to stop trusting in their own self-righteousness, because they have none. Lord, I pray that you would break their hearts before you, that you would show them their need of a Savior, that you would convert their soul. Lord, we ask this in Jesus' precious name. Amen.